Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Wednesday, June 29th. That means it's time for Destination Health. We're opening the phone lines right now. Promise if you dial, you'll get through. I'm going to bring Lauren in. Lauren, welcome. Hi, Kevin. Great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. You're supposed to be on vacation. What are you doing working? <laughs> I couldn't miss another show. Not two in a row. <laughs> well, well, that's awesome. So explain to me your view right now. What are you looking at? I am sitting in the boat and we're docked. We're here at the docks in the marina. And the guys are getting ready to go yellow tailing, and I'm just gonna hang back and hang with you guys. Excellent. So yeah, got we got the docks here at uh, in the Abacos in the Bahamas. Excellent. You uh, a beautiful place to be outdoors, all that fresh air and water. And are you eating any good seafood yet? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we got, we're actually, we fished quite a few days, but we've only had a few successful catches. We've had a couple mutton snapper, which is amazing. Um, I made a nice dinner of that last night. Um, and some grouper. Ooh. Or I think Ooh, it was yeah. dog snapper, grouper, and mutton snapper. So we've had a few, few different things, but Dang. really good. I did a, a, I'm cooking for seven. So wow. I did, I know, I know it's, it's always, you know, I always end up cooking for large groups when we're out here, you know, family and all. But last night I took a large, I guess it was like a Pyrex dish and I layered it with some sliced onion. And then I did a layer of ginger, fresh ginger. And then I put the fish on top and I seasoned that really good. And then layered it with more onion, ginger, and a ton of butter. Oh, threw that in the oven. Oh, it was so good. That does sound so good. When I lived in Florida, I had a, uh, I had a boat captain that just I loved this guy. We'd rent the boat, nobody else. He'd just take us out, and I, I absolutely love fresh snapper. Man, oh man, catch oh. and snapper is so fun to catch. It's so easy when some days you just hit one of those spots and you just pull them in one right after another. Uh, and snapper is just so good. Um, Grouper is pretty darn good too. So good. Everything tastes Absolutely. better when you catch it yourself and eat it outside. Anyway, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. So. So we'll see. We'll see if these guys get any lucky, any luck today uh, catching some yellowtail snapper. That's what they're going to go out for. The weather has been a little, you know, we've had a few storms roll in yesterday, kind of chase us from island to island. And today, this morning, it's been pretty hectic, but it looks like there's a nice break right now. So they're going to see what they can find. Good, good. You know, it's funny, where today I said, let's just make it a food day, so this is a good addition. But I was talking about the the different names for animals and meat and why it's so confusing and why it's not consistent. And I was talking about mutton, and now you, I, and I forgot all about this. I, for, I wonder why we call that a mutton snapper. 
Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I didn't know mutton was goat in the Caribbean because they call you know, they consider it, you know, they call it mutton here. And I was working for, um, I was working in the Virgin Islands years ago and in the cafeteria at work, there was mutton and I looked down at it and I said, that's mutton snapper, we're in trouble because <laughs> it's pretty brown. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and the other thing, once you go snapper fishing, you realize this, there's a lot of different kinds of snapper. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. There's that yellowtail, mutton, cog, you know, there's mangroves. Yeah. The three that we enjoy eating the most are going to be the mutton, the yellowtail, and the, uh, the hog snapper. But you're right, there are quite a few. Yeah, yellowtail is it, really, really good. Um, oh, what else do we have going on? To, oh, you know the the whole idea. You've traveled around the world, and and you've you've seen this. You just talked about it there. Um, goat, mutton, all of these are really common almost everywhere else in the world, and we eat almost none of it in this country. You're right. That is true. We really don't. So you're, you mentioned that you're making mutton today. Yeah, I'm actually, and it's a new cut. It's the neck. Oh, how are you doing that? Low and slow? Yeah, I'm going to put it on the smoker at probably like 185 degrees with heavy smoke for probably four hours then I'll take it off and I'll wrap mm-hmm. it in the red butcher paper. And at that point, you're, you're not going to get any more smoke on it. So it's just easier and faster. I'll bring it inside wrapped in the red butcher paper and I'll put it in an oven at uh, probably just 350 uh, and monitor the internal temperature. It's a lot like pork when it gets to about 210 everything has broken down and that gelatin starts to dissolve. And, and from what I understand, um, the mutton neck actually does have a lot of meat, but in the neck, there's so many bones and a lot of this gelatin. So I guess it really, really flavors the meat really well. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, I'm excited to hear how it turns out. I mean, I don't smoke anything, but... I do have a venison neck in the freezer that we keep looking at each other going, all right, we, we got to come up with a recipe <laughs> I, for this. So. I know. Yeah. I, I would do that same thing low and slow, you know, either put it in a, okay. um, a pressure cooker, which isn't really slow, but you get the exact same results. Something that takes eight hours in the pressure cooker, you can do a night or in a slow cooker, you can do a 90 minutes in the pressure cooker and it comes out the exact same way. So if you've got access to a pressure cooker, that's awesome because it's fast and the meat just falls apart. And, uh, but that's the way I would do that venison neck. Okay. I might, I might have to do um, more of a Dutch oven style because it's so large and my pressure cooker is an instant pot. So it it doesn't take much larger than a, a chicken. Actually a chicken is pretty much, the size that it that it can handle okay. the whole chicken. Yeah, yeah. But you I've could done d- pork butt in the Dutch oven. It, I would treat that, that neck almost exactly the way you treat a pork butt. Okay, great. 
I think the pork butt, I typically do five hours in the Dutch oven. I don't recall the temp that I do, but, oh, man, does it, does it end up tasting so good. I put a little citrus in there with a bunch of onions and oh, yeah. flavor it all up. And then we basically have, um, when I do it when I have a bunch of people over because it's an easy way to, to do tacos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That and, and that kind of meat for me, that slow cooked meat that kind of falls apart and it's got all that fat and gelatin in there. Oh, man, that makes the best tacos. It makes the best everything, I think. <laughs> I agree. It makes the best everything. So, yeah, so I'll keep you posted when I, when I finally get back and get a chance to test that out. It's definitely on the list. Good. Sitting next to the, the the venison liver that that we are scared to, yeah. to cook up too. <laughs> so, have I given you my liver recipe? I think you mentioned it, but remind me again. Yeah, so soak it in buttermilk overnight. That really kind of mm-hmm. tames those livery flavors that people don't like. So soak it in buttermilk overnight. Then what I do is I pull it right out of the buttermilk, kind of shake it off. I don't dry it. Pull it out of the buttermilk, give it a couple mm-hmm. shakes, and then I coat it with arrowroot flour. Okay. And, and it'll cling right to the buttermilk. That's why you don't dry it. And then I get a cast iron pan screaming hot. Um, now, if I'm going to do liver and onions, I'll start the onions in that cast iron pan, you know, an hour before this and let those caramelize low and slow. Then I'll take those out of the pan um, and I'll get that pan screaming hot, throw a ton of butter in there and I'll cook that liver maybe one minute on each side and the arrowroot will crisp it up just a little bit. Uh, It's still going to be pretty rare inside and I know that freaks people out with liver, but rare liver is Mm -hmm. much easier to eat than overcooked liver. The worst thing you can do to a piece of liver is overcook it. Mm-hmm. I heard they get gritty. It does. It gets nasty. So, and that's what people are used to. They're used to overcooked liver. That's why they don't like it. You got to be able to get, I, I mean, honestly, my, when I cook liver, it's almost raw in the middle. Okay. So still really pink. It, 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 deep red. It, it hasn't even turned to pink yet in okay. the very center. Yeah. It's that rare in the center. Oh, good to know. And that, what, what kind of liver are you typically cooking? I have cooked beef liver, calf's liver, lamb liver, venison liver, elk liver, pork liver, chicken liver. Um, I don't know if I'm forgetting any or not. Honestly, they're all, all they're all the same. Oh, very similar kind of texture and flavor. I, I, I can't tell the difference at all. Oh, bison liver. I've had bison liver. I, honestly, I can't tell the difference at all. Oh, that's good to know. Some people favor chicken because they say it's a little lighter, but yeah, chicken uh, liver I wouldn't really know. might be the one that's a little different. And actually, the one time I <laughs> seek out chicken liver, if I'm going to make uh, liver pate, I really, really like chicken livers to make pate. Oh, nice. The venison liver is so large. If you cook it and you don't eat it all, because if I'm cooking for two, 
can you save it or is you don't really save it? Uh, you can, but I, I'm not going to eat it the second day. I, liver is one of those things. It's just so touchy. If it's good, it's really good. If it's bad, I just don't like it. So now I'm not very big on leftovers with liver. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. So I was wondering if maybe I could take half of it That's, and do a pate and then the other half. Or, yeah. you know, the, the other thing I'll do if I have a big liver and it's frozen, I'll let it thaw just enough that I can cut it and I'll cut it in half. Put the other half back in the freezer. Yeah, I think we will the lesson this time that next time we'll cut it in half before we freeze it just so that we don't, we're not stuck with the entire thing. Yeah. It's a lot and it's it, quite large. It is large, yeah. There's a lot of liver there <laughs> off of an animal like that. So, uh, yeah, pre-portioning works well, too. You know, since today's a food day, um, I want to go back. You had mentioned the Dutch oven. And I think for most of us, mm-hmm. we think of a Dutch oven as probably like a you know, cast iron, ceramic coated, big pot, we put on the stove, we make soups and stews and that kind of thing. Have you ever seen the original Dutch oven cooking where you use charcoal briquettes? No, I've never heard of that. So I have... Mine is exactly like the previous, like the, the one that you just mentioned. It's like a big cast iron ceramic coating. So like I've a, never heard of the other. Like a La Crusette or a Lodge. Yes, the La Crusade, yes. Yeah. So La Crusade is the French version, outrageously expensive, uh, but I love them. I have some La Crusade stuff that I absolutely love. Lodge is an American company, usually quite a bit cheaper, really good cast iron. Um, so the this specific type of cooking, you can get a big cast iron, not ceramic coated, just straight cast iron, Um, It is called a Dutch oven. It has actually three little legs on the bottom, and they're just molded right out of the cast iron so that the pot sits off the ground, uh, I don't know, maybe two inches. And then it's got a big, heavy cast iron lid that's recessed. The top of it is recessed. And the way they did, when I first saw this, I thought there's no way that's going to cook something. But there are, there are people that, like, this is a thing. Like, you can find groups and everything. But here's the way they'll do the recipes. Let's say you're going to make something oh, like beef stew. You put all the ingredients in the pot. That's part of the recipe. But instead of a recipe that would say, you know, turn your oven to 350 degrees and, you know, cook it for 20 minutes or whatever, the recipes for this type of cooking tell you how many charcoal briquettes to use. Like you might put five briquettes, just individual charcoal briquettes. Now you're going to light them and get them going, but you might put five or six underneath this thing because it's got the legs. And then you might lay three or four on the lid and then you just let them burn. And I thought, there's no way that's going to cook something. It cooks incredible. Uh Uh-oh. Huh. Oh, you there? Very cool. Yeah, I'm here. Is it? I'm wondering if it's my end or your end. I don't know. I I lost you there for a second. Yeah, it's um, it's a very yeah. very cool way to cook, and it's shocking how few briquettes you have to use to cook that whole meal. Wow, very cool. And so you use like the timing wise, slow and slow as well. 
Yeah, it's usually a kind of a low and slow thing. And for some recipes, you'll actually, you know, have more briquettes setting aside that you'll start burning those at a certain point. You'll keep adding briquettes underneath and on top, depending on what the recipe is. I've done chili like that. That's just incredible. Um, Soups and stews. And then... I don't do a lot of this because I don't bake, but then people make a lot of desserts in there too, like cobblers and that kind of stuff, um, uh, biscuits and right in that same cast iron with the charcoal. Pretty neat. Yeah. You, you I'll can, have to check that out. Yeah, I'll look that up. It. It, um, it's, uh, I definitely will. Yeah, pretty interesting. So I have a, I think I have two of those. Uh, kind of Dutch ovens too that that's kind of fun when we're out camping I usually don't do it much at home it's one of those things if we're out camping I'll do it more often I should probably do it more often though because it really is kind of a cool way to cook especially in the summer you know do you really want your crock pot or a pot going all day on the stove in the summertime just put it outside and do it out there good point you're absolutely right there all right, let's uh, let's grab a call. I know we've got a uh, we've got a case study today, right? We do. We have a case study, and the topic is going to be anxiety. I thought it'd be interesting to go over some hidden causes of anxiety that people wouldn't typically think of. That's a good idea. I like that. Important too. We don't talk about that enough. So, thank you for bringing that today. Let's uh, let's take care of some calls, and then we'll jump into that uh, case study. We're going to go to California. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. I wanted to cook it on fire and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as you were just talking about, uh, um, you know, cooking those uh, Dutch oven in the char- with charcoal, you know, just, I always thought, man, does the charcoal flavor really get through? And that's why it's going to taste better or is that why it's going to because because like you said you were talking about oven heating it up just as much as the charcoal you know would of course underneath it and on top but uh you think the charcoal has a lot of good flavor in there huh well you know it's kind of funny if because the dutch oven obviously nothing's going through the dutch yeah. oven the lid's nice and heavy so it seals really well so no you really yeah. don't get a lot of the charcoal smoke flavor unless and and i do this because i like that flavor at the end when it's just about done i'll take the lid off and then it will actually oh, start right. to pick up some of that that smoke and charcoal flavor at the end yeah, that's right. Well, living in Texas, we got to find a good, uh, you know, post oak uh, uh, splits. And, you know, we're cooking on, uh, I got a smoker, you know, for uh, a stick burner, you know, all wood, you know. Yeah. And uh, once, and I, I love doing it with a, you know, big cut, of course, you know, like brisket, you know. And um, that way I can, uh, I don't know, I just seem, I, ha- I have the Traeger as well. I, I just have a little one. I thought maybe we... I was just trying my first one, you know, and, um, but, uh, you know, those, and like you said, you get a lot of the most smoke you get in three, four hours. Right. And, uh, I find once you get a nice coal bed in there and, you know, you start adding some splits, you know, or some good, that wood really penetrates it. I think more than that, the, the, um, the trigger, 
but I will use the trigger for like pork and chicken, lighter stuff, you know, like especially ribs that, that tend to go quicker, you know, but, uh, I was thinking you have so much time when you're around outside in the garden that you would really like, uh, smoking, uh, with wood. You know, it, but it's you just, maybe you're busy too. I, I'm sure. That's the thing. So I'm not, I'm not just, you know, sitting around <laughs> waiting for the smoker and yeah. to go add more wood and I got to keep <laughs> setting alarms and remember to go over there. And, I, it, it, and, and look, I, I've done, you know, full smoking like that and I absolutely <clears throat> love it. But it is a lot more work. I mean, and my Traeger. Oh, that's right. The, um, yeah. the Traeger that I've got actually has a super smoke setting on it. And it, it can put out yeah. a lot of smoke. Oh, oh, yeah. And I, that's another thing. Yeah, I was seeing some things like the clean smoke actually is, you know, yeah, you get it. But that's what it is. It's clean. So you're going to get like we're actually a little bit of dirty smoke actually gives it a little more, you know, flavor. But I also remembered, uh, having those, uh, probes in there that are Bluetooth, you know, for your phone and you can kind of see what your smoker box is doing. You put the probes in there and that's kind of fun too, you know, seeing the temperature of your, uh, when when to go at it, add some wood. Yeah. I love the fact that, and I never have to go add wood because, you know, the hopper for the pellets (laughs) is big enough that it cooks the whole meal without ever refilling it. But I can check the temperature. I can see what's going on. Um, So for me, as much as I love that, you know, pure traditional smoking for the most part, I would, honestly, I probably use my smoker on average three times a week all year long. I mean, that's how often I use it. And there is no way I would use it that much if I had to do a a true smoker. Yeah. When's the last time you smoked a brisket? Brisket, man, oh, man. I love a good brisket. Brisket is, for me, the hardest thing there is to cook. And I finally have found a recipe that works. But, man, it's a lot of work. It's like multiple changes of temperature. I have to wrap it. Then when I'm done, it actually gets wrapped in um, the red butcher paper, then foil, then a big heavy towel, and then I put it in a cooler and let the thing sit in a cooler for like four or five hours um, coming back down to temperature. And that finally works. I can get good brisket. I did it... um, when did I do a brisket? Last? Yeah, the rest time. Yeah, yeah. So I I love it, but man, it's a lot of work. So I don't do brisket all that I often. I know. Yeah, we love it, and you know, especially the point, the patty, the patty part, and uh, our. Sometimes I just I can get uh, I can buy just the points now too. Uh, but no. I was going to say, yeah, the rest me, part let, is so important. Let me tell yeah. you this. If you are going to put in the work for a brisket and you want the best brisket you have ever had in your life, make sure you've got a good recipe and you know how to cook it right. It sounds like you do. Yeah. Get a piece of brisket from Heritage Foods. Now, um, you should probably start (laughs) filling out the application for the bank loan right now. Um, (laughs) The brisket is expensive, but oh, it is 
hands down the and I've had some of the best Texas brisket where you know the pitmasters are incredible if they would start with yeah. this cut of meat I can't imagine what they would come up with this brisket is okay. is so good and do you like corned beef See, we thought about this, you know, uh, doing st- something different, and we just haven't tried it. But yeah, we love it. That, get their corned beef from them too. Same thing. It's outrageously expensive. It's basically the same cut, um, but they, Ooh, it's wow, the best we'll corned beef I've ever had in my life. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll probably do that. Yeah, Tammy likes that stuff. Oh yeah. Get um, get, get some. Fr- that is a special treat. But man, when I want to put out okay. a really impressive dinner, I'll either get that brisket or that corned beef and throw that on the smoker. And it is just, actually, I, I tend to do the corned beef in the oven. I don't really like a lot of smoke on the corned beef. So I just tend to do the corned beef in a okay. um, kind of slow braised in the oven. Um, and it is just yeah, braised. in your mouth. It's okay. so tender. Oh, wow. I'm going to check it out. Uh, and, and, oh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, one of the problems when I first started this was smoking brisket was um, we don't, you know, like we don't get hungry in the mornings and we usually don't eat but once and it's later, you know, maybe, you know, three, four, five, or even maybe if we're busy, you know, till, or when we're hungry, right? Usually later. Well, the brisket, was, you know, it needs such a long rest time. Sometimes it, if I didn't get up at like three in the morning and, you know, it wasn't going to be ready, you know, in time and, the, you know, it's getting dark and it's too late to eat. So I bought one of those food warmers that you, uh, those commercial ones, they're all stainless with the tray in there. You kind of put, put water, an inch of water at the bottom. Oh yeah. And then you put the, you know, yeah, I put my wrapped brisket in there when it's, you know, done and it, uh, in, in the top tray and then you put the tray on top of the water. So, you know, there's no water touching it, but, and then, so it's, and it goes to like 140, as low as, and uh, so I try to keep it right. And um, better than I can let it rest while I sleep, you know, overnight. And then we can kind of eat when we get hungry the next day, and it's yeah. nice and tender and rested. Yeah, I have. But a, yeah, uh, it's a lot of work. I, I have a pretty well equipped kitchen because I cook so much. I have a built in steamer. Uh, on my island. And one of the best ways to warm up those kind of meats without drying them out is just to throw them in a steamer. Oh, a steamer, huh? Because that's yeah, basically it's a lot of what work. that you other know, appliance take... is doing. That's why the water's in there. They're really? basically just creating, you know, warm or hot yeah. water vapor so that it heats the meat without oh. drying it out. Okay. And yeah, I heard people put it in the toaster ovens and, and on, on a, on warm, you know, do you think I'm, you think that's a, that's a good way on huh? the steamer? Is that okay? What I'm doing? Oh, absolutely. That's the best the way warmer? to, to okay. gently reheat a okay. meat like that without overcooking it and drying it out. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's been working out pretty good where we can enjoy it the next day or without being stressed out if I rested it enough or anything like that. But yeah. I'm still trying to dial it in because song of a rest. Sort of, kind of. You know, I don't know. It's, it's fun. I enjoy it. It's tasty. Absolutely. But, uh, uh, you know, the one thing I, I will say about the area that I live in now, we have almost no chain restaurants around here, very little fast food. 
we have a lot of smaller, um, you know, kind of unique restaurants. And uh, but the one thing we just don't have much of around here at all is smoked meats. That barbecue and smoked meats not a big thing here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it, and it's one of my favorites. I do a ton of it. And the funny thing is, uh, when we have parties or we do events, people go nuts over all the smoked meats. I do ribs, brisket, pork shoulder, um, some smoked chicken. I've done smoked turkey. Uh, I've done smoked scotch eggs, brats, all, it just all kinds of things. I'll smoke some of the veggies. I'll do a smoked salsa once in a while. People go nuts over it. But yet, it's just you can't find any good uh, barbecue or smoked meats around here. Let's uh, let's go to Minnesota. John, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Um, uh, uh, fermenting asparagus. You can get the stuff from the stores being all the chemicals sprayed on them. Will that still ferment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you can buy your, okay. your vegetables from the... Now, it, it, if you can find organic, then it probably didn't have nearly as much crap right. sprayed on it. Doesn't matter though; conventional vegetables will will ferment just fine. Okay, that's uh, just also I was I, on. Um, just so you know, guys, comment. I think uh, I think that asparagus is super low on the dirty dozen list, meaning that it's not nearly as you know, it's not nearly as covered in pesticides and different kind of stuff like that. Oh, that's so, a good point. Okay. If you can't get it, yeah, asparagus is a pretty safe one. Yeah, and, and okay. now that I'm growing yeah. asparagus, I know why. Um, asparagus is super easy to grow. Nothing messes with it. I don't, I, there aren't any bugs that are bothering my asparagus plants. You don't get things like, you know, powdery mildew or some of those other things we're always fighting. And it's just, and, and asparagus grows wild in a lot of places. It, it just doesn't take much to grow asparagus. Once you've got a plant established, I don't fertilize my asparagus. I don't, you know, worry about bugs or, so it, it's just really easy to grow. I'm sure that's why that's one of the cleaner vegetables even if it's not organic that would make sense and how quickly you said it grows as oh well. it's it's insane it grows like <laughs> six inches in 24 hours it's just crazy <laughs> yeah one other comment i had kind of puts the pitch in with this is the uh e85 cost of uh corn yeah uh it's in the amount that goes to E85. It might put the tipping point on healthy foods. People uh, going more towards the healthier yeah. foods and I, buying all this processed stuff. I, I don't so see it happening. In, yeah, I don't see it happening because the processed stuff is still just cheap. Even with prices going yeah. up, the processed food is to just dirt cheap. Um, and, you know, I read a report today that that is the biggest health problem we're facing in the world is we've now made food really, really cheap. And it's good because people aren't going hungry, but the cheap food will kill us slowly over time. I mean, all the cheap food is just garbage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. All right, Lauren, let's uh, 
Let's jump into our case study today, and we're going to focus primarily on anxiety. Um, This is becoming a a really, really big issue in our culture today. We're seeing it in younger and younger kids. We're seeing more people really kind of debilitated by anxiety. This um, This is a harder one for me it's not that I don't know what anxiety is or what it feels like. I really just haven't experienced it much in my life at all. But I can say this, the couple of times that I have, it's awful. I don't know how people who have a lot of anxiety make it. And I also believe that that's why we're seeing a rise in suicides. I think some of these conditions are bad enough that they actually drive people to suicide. Like I said, I've experienced some anxiety a couple times in my life and it is just awful but i i just don't have much experience with it at all mm-hmm. i agree i mean i personally have you know it's been a long time but when i was younger i, I you know i had a couple bouts where i felt like i really had um you know where i could relate to people um but i know that we've had a lot more you know, people in the tribe calling in with anxiety and depression and whether, you know, it's the first thing that it's, whether it's the top of their, you know, concern list or whether it's, you know, something that, that we kind of uncover as I talk with them. Um, it, I just notice it more and more. And, you know, I thought, I thought, let's look at the functional, you know, thought process, you know, how we think of treating it or, you know, addressing it um, from a functional standpoint and how people are doing that as opposed to what a lot of, um, you know, conventional doctors are doing. And really what I see what most conventional doctors are doing is prescribing medications for it. And I just want to, I just want to say that if you are someone who benefits from anti-anxiety or depression medications, then that's wonderful for you. You know, don't, I'm not, this isn't about, you know, trying to get off of them. I don't want to, I don't want to make you feel like there's a need for anything. If it works for you, that's wonderful. Um, I just happen to be coming across more and more people who it's not working for. And even though it's not working for them, the doctor seems to just be adding more of these drugs onto, they're kind of stacking them. And they're still having these, you know, these episodes of anxiety or they can't shake this ongoing depression. So I just wanted to mention that if it is working for people, that's great. So I'm going to jump in with uh, probably a stronger recommendation than that. I'm going to say, even if it's working for you, you should really make it a goal to get off of it because at some point it won't work for you. That seems to be the pattern. And then they will, your doctor will recommend a second drug. Like you said, they start stacking drugs because the one isn't working very well anymore. Then we now know there's another pattern here. You stack a couple of these uh, mental health drugs and you have a higher likelihood of creating a new disease only caused by these drugs. We've talked about it before called tardive dyskinesia, where you start getting uncontrolled body movements. Your face moves without you and you can't stop it. Your hands and your arms will move and twitch. And now you have to take another drug to stop the tardive dyskinesia. 
This is a fairly common pattern. So I'm going to tell people you're, you're antidepressant or anti-anxiety or bipolar medication might be working somewhat now, but your goal should still be to get off of these. And they are horrible for gut bacteria, which really is probably the root cause of your problem. Most people suffering these have dysbiosis and it's the dysbiosis causing the problem. And then we take a drug that makes the dysbiosis worse. That is very true. That is very true. But it's one of those things as well that we should mention that shouldn't be a cold turkey, you know, stop taking it. Good point. Because that can cause serious problems. So it's something to definitely work with your doctor on. And just let them know that my overall goal is to not be on this forever. You know, that's, that's, that's what I would do if it were me. So I think that, um, that kind of just sums up the whole, Hey, if it's working for you and you have that going, it's not something you want to quit cold turkey, but you can work with the doctor and tell them what your overall goal is to get off of it. And hopefully you can do so a little easier with some of these, um, these hidden causes, because I think really illuminating these causes, um, will, will help you handle it better, you know, be able to cope better with your anxiety as well as work towards getting off the medication. Yes, I agree. Now I would also say based on everything we've learned over the years, that uh, if I had to recommend a diet that would address this, I think the best way possible, um, knowing that this is dysbiosis, unbalanced gut bacteria, food reactions, stress, uh, I absolutely believe that fermented carnivore would be the best diet to address this with. that is a great way to start eliminating things and make sure that you are feeding the good gut bacteria. So I would agree with you there. Yeah. So let, let's, uh, let's talk about the specific case and some of the causes of anxiety and how we might deal with it. And let's, let's go ahead and jump into that. All right. So the case study today is a 37 year old woman. Her main concerns are mental health and depression and weight. Uh, some of the findings that I noticed that I came across were her sleep is she rated at a two out of 10 and her stress level was eight out of 10. And something that she didn't mention that I only found out from reviewing her intake form and her NutriQ is that she also suffers from rheumatoid arthritis because she's on some medications for that. So I thought that was interesting that it wasn't something that she automatically, you know, said, I want to work on this, but we do know that leaky gut leads to rheumatoid arthritis and a gut dysbiosis and leaky gut also lends to anxiety and depression. Yeah. So I know I've said this a lot, but I think it helps when people understand this, that you know, when, when we talk about these types of conditions, mental health conditions, first off, because for years, I, I don't think our doctors have understood. I doubt that we really even understand a lot of this stuff today. And because of that, there's there's been in the past this theory that, oh, it's all in your head. Well, yeah, kind of is. <laughs> but that, you know, that there isn't really anything wrong. You know, there's even a, a stigma to this. It's going away some. Um, but, you know, we, we have to address that, that 
if people are feeling these things, I I don't care if we say it's all in their head or they're feeling it. We have to deal with that. You can't say it's it's fake or there's nothing here or you're not really sick. They are. They have a symptom. I, I don't care if it's psychosomatic, if they created it themselves or not. We still have to deal with it. We, we need to get these people out of that pain and suffering they're in. But what we now know, which turns this whole thing upside down, we know that this is an imbalance of neurotransmitters in the brain. We don't have enough dopamine or we don't have enough serotonin or, or whatever it might be. We've always tried to use these drugs that directly affect those chemicals in the brain. Um, we can't really create these chemicals. There are no drugs that we can take that really kind of increase these and if you do, there's some real downsides to that. I mean, that's how we generate addiction and, and other things. If we start creating too much serotonin in the body, we can have all kinds of problems. What they've done instead, the way some of these neurotransmitters work is our, our brain releases them and then uptakes them again, takes them back up into the cell. And by doing that, we can keep more of that neurotransmitter available. So a, a big class of these drugs are SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So they stop the brain from pulling that serotonin back in to the cell. They leave it in the, in the synapse, in the, uh, in the space between the nerve endings, um, which is another way to try to increase the amount of serotonin in the brain. Unfortunately, these things just don't work very well. They tend to work somewhat in the beginning and give people some relief. The problem is, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this, if you do talk to some people about stopping these or cutting back, some people panic. They're like, oh, no, I, I never want to go back to feeling like that. But wait a minute. You're obviously not feeling right because you're asking me, how do we fix this? But you're so afraid to go back. You did get some relief in the beginning. Um, so th this is a really difficult issue to deal with. And I think you're correct that in the beginning, a lot, a lot of people find some relief. But then after being on them, for, for whatever reason, it seems to stop working after a while. You know, I, I think I it's, know, I, it, it, let's think about, you know, drugs in general um, or even something like insulin resistance. The, the theory here is kind of the same. I mean, when you first start eating too much sugar, you won't know it because your body's so good at releasing insulin and dealing with the sugar. It takes decades, and then after a while, we're insulin-resistant. It's just it's not working as well anymore. Um, drugs like opioids, one of the reasons opioids are such a problem is that we build a tolerance to them really fast. Like you take one Percocet today, and it really helps your pain, but if you're in chronic pain, by next week, you're going to be taking two Percocets to get the same 
effect. And the week after that, it's going to be three. I've known people who are up to 50 and 60 opioids a day because that's what it takes now to, to make them feel what they call normal. The same thing happens with these other um, psychiatric drugs. It's just, we, you can't take, you know, 60 SSRI day, SSRIs a day. It'll kill you. So the, we build a tolerance to these things. They work sort of okay in the beginning. Then the longer you're on them, the less they work. And you can't just increase the dose. The side effects are horrendous. Exactly. So it's, it's interesting, but that makes sense, you know, that they would start working. You know, we also, we also hear, of, you know, if your body, for instance, like melatonin, you know, they say, great, melatonin can be great to supplement every so often, but you don't want to be taking that every night or else your body's going to stop making its own melatonin because it doesn't, there's no need for, for it to be making it anymore. So there are, you know, I thought maybe perhaps that had something to do with it, but yes. then I realized that that 90% of serotonin is synthesized in the gut by bacteria. I thought that was fascinating. It, it is fascinating. 90%. It, yeah. It, uh, I heard at one time 80%. I'm not surprised that it's really 90%. Um, this is like, again, we, we talk about this gut bacteria being the cutting edge. This is so new, so much we don't know about this. But when we figured this out, that 80% of our immune system is really our gut bacteria. And now 80 to 90% of our neurotransmitters, those brain chemicals that are so important, they're all coming from our gut. You have dysbiosis and now you have gut bugs that are making the wrong chemicals and causing things like anxiety. So dopamine as well, 50% of dopamine synthesized in the gut by bacteria. And then GABA, I don't know how much, what the percentage is for GABA, but that as well. So GABA gives you that calming, relaxing effect. Serotonin and dopamine are those feel-good you know, chemicals, or they're also known as, um, as hormones, but those are, you know, that's, that's what's making you feel good. And if you're not, if you don't have the right gut bacteria, then you're not going to be able to produce that. So that's why really looking at the diet, making sure you're feeding, you know, your microbiome, the proper foods for them to multiply and they're bad bacteria out is going to be really critical here. Lauren? Are you there? Oh, yeah. There, there you are. Okay, there we go. You, yeah. So. Did I cut off in there? I'm not sure. You kind of finished the sentence, so I think you may have just finished. Um, okay. So the, one of the other things, and I, I want to say this before I forget about it, because my mind's going, you know, in 10 different directions with this. or so much we could talk about. Um it's now starting to become pretty evident that a lot of over-the-counter medications of all kinds, whether it's pain relievers, antihistamines, whatever, um, we have all these over-the-counter drugs we can buy for all kinds of things now. It turns out that almost all of them disrupt gut bacteria. And we just assume if I can buy it in the drugstore over-the-counter, it must be safe. And it's, that's just absolutely not true. 
You should not be taking any of those things. I have not taken any kind of over-the-counter of the medication in years now for anything. And it used to be so easy. You grab an Advil, you grab a Tylenol, you got a stuffy nose, you grab this, whatever. You really have to think twice about taking any of that stuff. You just really shouldn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we talk about that, you know, in the leaky gut episode. We talk about how important it is to, you know, to eliminate those things, especially if you're addressing leaky gut. You can't address leaky gut until you've eliminated those things because it's going to cause it again. So you're right about that. So other causes of, uh, you know, of anxiety could be something as simple as a nutritional deficiency. So poor digestion you know, where you're not absorbing enough B vitamins, vitamin D, zinc, and magnesium, those are, those are going to be really critical to, you know, to your keeping yourself healthy and making sure your digestion is on track to absorb all those other nutrients. Good point. Good point. We talk about it all the time. All of this, when we talk about why diet is so important, what we're really talking about is nutrients. All of this comes down to nutrients, and there's two steps. One, we have to consume them. Two, we have to digest them. And if we're doing that, then we can fix almost all of these things. Um, Digestion, I think, is the one that sometimes trips people up. And and when you're, you know, you're eating cleaner and sometimes you're not getting all the results, many times we, we need to look at digestion. Yeah. You know, if you have poor digestion, it can lead to stuff like cut this bite, um, you know, candida parasites, leaky gut. So all of those things, all of that contributes to anxiety. Another thing that, that, that is important to mention is blood sugar swings. That when we crash after having too many carbs and we have that, that crash after the carbs, that induces a stress response. And we talk about that a lot. That induces a stress response, which can feel identical to anxiety and even panic. And we don't think about that. So if you still are eating the standard American diet and you're dealing with anxiety, pay attention to that. See if, you know, if anxiety kind of, kind of peaks right after you eat or a little bit after you eat uh, a high-carb meal. Good point. Good point. And, and I do know people that are um, initially, sometimes that high carb meal can be calming. And I know there are people that, that get into that pattern. They binge eat like this because the act of eating sometimes can be calming. You know why um, just eating itself sometimes calms us down? No, I don't. But I know a lot of people turn to food, you know, to kind of calm themselves. Yeah, we call it emotional eating and and it works. And one of the reasons, there could be multiple reasons, nutrients, carbs, all kinds of things, blood sugar. But one of the reasons is that when we eat, it tends to help regulate our breathing. Mm, Interesting. I had not thought about that. Yeah, so sometimes it's just, you know, when you get anxious, your chest kind of gets tight, you start taking those kind of fast, shallow breaths, and that increases the anxiety. 
that starts releasing, breathing that way starts releasing more of the stress hormones, the cortisol. And so just sometimes just that act of eating helps us regulate our breathing just enough that we actually get some relief from those symptoms. So instead of eating, try a couple rounds of Wim Hof breathing. It will do the same thing. That's a great idea. I'm, I'm excited to get into some other stress busters here with you because I know you've been working on a bunch of different ones, so that'll be interesting to get into here in a minute. Um, other things that can cause anxiety that we don't think about is hormone imbalances, um, most notably estrogen dominance. So I thought that was really interesting because, you know, with estrogen, we, we get into this whole kind of a cycle of where you can't quite get it corrected and get it right. And a lot of different things can cause estrogen dominance, um, eating, you know, commercially raised animals, like, like you talk about a lot. A lot of those animals are injected with growth hormones and those hormones can disrupt our hormones. So we have to keep that in mind. Uh, pesticides and herbicides, stuff like that can affect our, our hormones. And then I know you've talked a lot about personal care products, like different deodorants and soaps and stuff. Um, they, a lot of those can contain, you know, parabens and phthalates and stuff like that. So staying away from those, BPA and other plastics. Um, and then one thing that we don't think about with estrogen dominance is if we are, if we don't have a regular bowel movement, what happens is our estrogen is excreted through a bowel movement. And if we don't have a bowel movement, then it is recycled and our body reabsorbs the estrogen. So we always want to make sure that, yeah, we need to make sure that we're keeping regular. Um, But yes, I I do hear a lot of women, once they they realize that that could potentially be what's causing their estrogen dominance and they start really focusing on getting regular, it seems to go away because a lot of the times it's not that they're exposed to all of the things. Already cut out, you know, the bad products and they're eating, you know, clean, you know, meats and whatnot. So I thought that was a really interesting one that we don't typically think of staying regular and all the ways that it's important. But that is one way that I think is um, it's really important to make sure that we're be- being able to get rid of the excess hormones that, that you come out of the body. Yes. And... When we're talking about hormones and estrogen, we can't forget soy. One of the biggest offenders. Yeah. Soy should not be in the human diet. Soy just wreaks havoc with hormone levels. It increases estrogen dominance in both um, females and males. And yet we've been told forever that soy is like the health food, right? Wasn't that like the... Like the classic health food, soy, the tofu instead of meat. And what a huge mistake that was. You're right, especially for vegetarians. I've been, they've been turning to, to tofu and all the soy products for decades, thinking that they're doing their body, you know, a favor. And really, yeah, and- a freaking habit. Yeah, and soy milk and soy everything, and it's a real problem. Stay away from soy. It should not be in your diet at all. And 
The other problem with soy in the United States, not like we need one more problem, but I think the number is somewhere between 80 to 90% of the soy we grow in this country is genetically modified. Mm-hmm. Good point. And probably heavily sprayed with glyphosate like everything else. So that's a, a problem to stay away from. One other topic I want to touch on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times the the... You know, we we talk about anxiety, depression. Those are two totally different things. And then we have the bipolar aspects, um, you know, kind of the the manic. And um, most of the time, though, it seems like everybody has a little bit of a mix of all of these things. But one of the things that can really impact this, and it's kind of one of those catch-22 things, um, if you know somebody who's anxious, stressed, depressed, whatever it might be, they come home from a hard day at work. What is one of the really common things that we turn to, to kind of wind down? The television. Uh, alcohol is the one I'm thinking. Or alcohol. About. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Alcohol, you're right. Yeah, and haven't we kind of been brainwashed to believe that 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 glass of wine with dinner is really healthy? Yeah. It's not. It's not. Uh, And trust me, I I was a been a wine drinker for a long time. I used to make my own beer. I thought about starting to make my own wine. Um, I drank wine just about every night for probably 20 years. And I was the same, oh, it's one glass, sometimes two, it's good for you, it's healthy, that's all bullshit. And I will tell you, if you are suffering from any of these things, anxiety, depression, alcohol makes them all much worse in two ways. One, alcohol is a depressant. I mean, if you're depressed, why do you want to take a depressant? You don't. But that's what alcohol is. It's a depressant. It will, and yes, I get it. It makes you feel better in the moment. When you are stressed and your chest is tight and you're anxious, alcohol kind of makes that go away. You do feel better. I understand why people would do it. But ultimately, you're making the problem worse. One, the alcohol itself is a depressant. Two, alcohol is really bad for our gut bacteria. And we know that this is a gut bacteria issue. You're right. I didn't even think of alcohol, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, Something I, to stay away from. You really do. And like I say, it, it, it's the catch-22 because in the moment, it does make us feel better. If you're anxious, a glass of wine feels pretty darn good. It calms you down and, and we think, well, no, this does work. Except in the morning, um, it, it's not working so good. You you have worse symptoms the next day because you drank alcohol the night before. Um, but a lot of people just never put that together. They just think, well, when I drank it, I felt better. It must be helping me. It's really not. It's really hurting. And like I said, in two ways. So definitely um, watch that. The, the other, you know, I, I think all of these are also really, really tied in with stress. And I think stress makes all of these worse. And yet 
when you go to a doctor, they just don't ever deal with the stress part. Let's just give you a drug, but nobody ever really deals with the stress. And I think we could help a lot of people with these symptoms if they would focus on um, two strategies that I've developed around stress. The one that I thought was going to be the most important really turned out not to be. And that the idea of you got to take a break from stress. You just have to get away from it. You got to give yourself a, a break and, you know, get out of those stressful situations. Go sit by the lake or go do something that's very relaxing for you or meditate or, or whatever it might be, whatever those strategies that work for you to kind of take you away from the stress. But if that's all you do, that won't be enough because you, you will, it, it the analogy I've used for this is if you want to run a marathon, you have to go out and run. And the more you run, the stronger you'll get, and eventually you'll be able to run a marathon. If you wanted to run a marathon using the strategy that I'm going to lay in bed all day so that I don't use up any of my energy and then I'll have enough energy to run a marathon. Does that make any sense? No. That wouldn't work ever, would it? Nobody's ever going to be able to run a marathon by staying in bed and resting and building up their energy. But sometimes that's the only way we've been taught to deal with stress. You just have to get away from it. Well, you can get away from it all you want, but at some point you're going to be in stress again. I mean, you have to live. You can't stay in bed the rest of your life. So the minute you're back into the stress, you fall apart because you don't have a stress muscle. You haven't trained your body to deal with stress. All you've done is try to avoid it when really we need both. Just like if we want to train for a marathon, we're going to go out and run hard. We're going to push our muscles. We're going to push them past what they're used to, and then they'll build stronger. But then we also have to rest them, right? Yeah. If we thought we're just going to go out and start running today and we're just going to keep running until we can do a marathon, that's not going to work either. So we, we can use that same approach to the stress issue. We have to build our stress muscle and, and condition our body to be used to stress and to be able to handle stress. And then at times we do want to get away from stress and give our body a break. So, but we've always focused on just getting away from it, meditate, take a vacation, you know, go down to the lake, go fishing, whatever. And we wonder why it's not really helping. It might help in the moment. We get a little bit of a break from it, but then the next day we're back at work and we fall apart within hours and we're stressed again. So we should focus a lot more on building the stress muscle. And the routine I've developed, four pieces and parts, and you can mix them and match them and do them whenever it works for you. Um, To do the entire routine from start to finish takes almost two hours. That's a lot of time. Most people don't have two hours in a day to commit or they don't want to commit two hours a day. You got to find time to do some of these things. And the more you do them, the stronger you're going to get, the better you're going to be, the less you'll deal with these things like anxiety and depression. But this is a tough one. This is more difficult than eating. Everybody has to eat anyway. We just teach them to eat the right foods all the time and they get healthier. But nobody has to do any of these things. And most of us don't. 
So this one is, is definitely more challenging, but I can tell you if you do this, the results are pretty incredible. I had a caller earlier today. He's been doing this routine that I developed for about a year. And he's at the point now where he says he can't not do it. Like it's that ingrained in him now. Like this is his, it, and, it, and this works. So the four pieces here. And what we're doing with these four pieces is just like we would push our muscles beyond what they're normally pushed to, to make them stronger. That We would train our muscles to either run more, jump higher, lift more weight, whatever it might be. We, we push them beyond what they're capable of over and over and over, and then they get stronger and stronger. That, that's what we're doing with our stress muscle here. We're doing things that, and we can measure this. That's why I love the watch. It's how I developed this, the Garmin watch. We have that instant stress reading, and all of these things will push our stress limit right to the very top. The, the, the scale is roughly zero to 100. Uh, when you're at zero, you are the Zen master. That's as calm as you're going to get. When you're at 100, <laughs> That's max stress. And we don't want to walk around all day at, you know, stress levels of 90 to 100. That'll just wear us out. But we do want to reach those levels. Specifically, we want to do things that get us to that level for a short period of time and do that consistently. So the, the four things that I found, and there are other things that work. These are the four most effective, though. So these are the four that I really focus on. And if you're doing these four, this is all you need. If you do these consistently, it really works. So two of them I always try to recommend first because they're free. They don't cost us anything. They don't require any equipment whatsoever. That is the Wim Hof, both his breathing method and the cold showers or cold, cold exposure could be a cold shower, could be a cold plunge, a bath, could be going outside in the cold, whatever it might be. We want to get those temperature extremes. And anybody who has the watch, you can measure this. You can see it happen. Um, when I start doing the breathing, um, it's incredible what happens to your stress levels during the breathing. So, when you're doing the first stage, the heavy breathing part, you're breathing in really deep than letting air out, breathing in really deep than letting it out. And sometimes we go even faster. My stress level will go through the roof. I can get it up into the 90s just by heavy breathing, this Wim Hof breathing. But then when you go into the breath hold, that stress level starts to drop like a rock. Now, in the beginning, it won't. It will stay high because you're weak. But as you start to develop the stress muscle, you'll start to see that during the breath hold phase, you can get that stress level to come down really fast. Like under 25 on the stress level, that's what we call resting. I, my goal is to be able to, when I'm doing the breathing, to get my stress level under 25. And if I, if I can't do it in three rounds, then I'll do four. If I can't do it in four rounds, then I'll try to do five. I'll keep doing rounds until when I go to the breath hold, my stress level drops. I've actually been able to get it under 10 at times. 
So it, it, it's this workout wow. is just like working out a muscle. While we're breathing hard, the stress level goes up. We're working out the muscle. Then we stop and we rest and we go into that breath hold, which is very calming. And then we watch that stress come down. Then we do another round. So our stress goes way up. Then we work to bring it down again. This, I'm not exaggerating, is 10 times more effective than meditation. And I used to be I used to be the guy who was always recommending meditation to everybody because I didn't know anything else. It, it works, it's, you know, but I can tell you the Wim Hof breathing is so much easier to understand, so much easier to do, and way more powerful than meditation. Are you doing it yet, by the way? I am not doing it on a regular basis, and I really need to be. Yes, you do. When I'm here in the islands, I have to say, free diving is very similar. Oh, and that's it's, right. It's interesting. That's right. It is. And then you also get the compression. So when you're diving deep, you get the compression on your body. So everything is getting compressed by your organs, everything. It's, it's one of the best things. And my father, actually, he, I mean, he's addicted. <laughs> he... <laughs> When we are out here, that's all he wants to do. He'd rather do that fish at any, you know, any day. He just wants to get out there. He loves to breathe up and then the breath holds. So you're breathing up. So you're really stretching your diaphragm and allowing it to build capacity. And you do that a bunch of times. And then you exhale everything out and breathe up really heavy once. And then that's when you go down. And your hold can be, you know, anywhere from. 30 seconds to a couple minutes and the more you practice the better you get and after a good dive he always says he feels he feels you for it yes he, and he you can yeah. see it on him you can see it he, he looks like he's floating it's, it's incredible so yes when we're out here we definitely get um the free diving is very similar to uh like a Wim Hof style breathing technique. You are absolutely correct. A lot of similarities and the same thing physiologically is happening. Um, so that that's really a good point. Plus, like you said, you've got the compression, the water, the fresh air, the sunshine, all that stuff. I mean, it, you, you got it all. So um, that that is a great activity. Um, the, the and you're putting food on the table. <laughs> there you go. And you're putting food on the table. Um <laughs> I have a uh, kind of a funny story about diving. I haven't done it a lot, snorkeling and diving. I've done it. I love it. I've done it, you know, in different places around the world, done in the Keys. And um, one of my first times, though, that I wonder if it was the first time I ever snorkeled. It may have been. I mean, I may have played around as a kid here and there, but nothing. So um, I was in the Army and... I was stationed up here in the Pacific Northwest at uh, Fort Lewis. That's when I fell in love with this area. And my roommate um, got transferred to Hawaii. So later on that year, I had 30 days leave saved up and I can fly military. I could fly to Hawaii for five bucks on an Air Force plane. And five bucks actually buys you a lunch. Um, and I could stay with him while I was over there, and he had an extra car. So I'm going to get a one-month Hawaiian vacation for almost nothing. I mean, it cost me almost nothing to go do wow. this. And I just had a ball. I mean, he had a, 
you know, a little efficiency condo right on the North Shore on uh, Oahu. So, I mean, really, his back door was in the sand. We walked out, we were in the sand. The, the water was right there. And he had a Zodiac, um, a raft. And we'd go about a half mile offshore. And there was a reef out there. And then there was this one big rock, probably... I'd say this rock was probably about 30 feet all the way around. And we were, I was young, we were in the army, so we were partying most nights. And um, he wakes me up one morning at like 4.30 and we had been up drinking kind of late. So still had a hangover. And he said, hey, come on, before work, he was heading into work. He was in the army too. Um, he said, we have time. Let's go put the net out this morning and then we'll pick it up tonight and we'll have dinner. And I said, well, what do we catch? And he says, who knows? Catch all kinds of stuff. He said, we just put the, the net out around that rock. Uh, and he said, we'll have all kinds of things. I'm like, all right. So we go out there and I'm not really, I haven't snorkeled much. I don't know what I'm doing. And you got to dive down. And it's probably, I'm going to say the bottom of this rock might be 12 feet down. I mean, not really deep, but you got to hold your breath. You got to get under there. You got to figure all this out. So we're down there and I'm trying to get the net set and I, I can't get it right. And then as I'm trying to like, I got it. St- I thought I had it stuck on a rock and I'm trying to pull it out and I can't get it. And then you got to stop and you got to go back up and you got to breathe again. And then you got to go back down. And I'm just fighting with this thing. And I'm watching my roommate. He's got like half his done already. And I haven't even got this one spot. And so I go under there and I'm pulling and it feels like every time I try to pull the net out, it felt like something was pulling it back in. And I'm like, what is going on? So finally I get my head down there and I pull the net out and there's a lobster in there. And the lobster keeps backing up into the crevice and taking the net back in there. That's why I can't get it out. So I'm like, all right, now I know what's going on. So I reach in farther and I grab the net and I pull as hard as I can, like right to my chest. And now I've got the net loose and this lobster is right there. And these are, I don't know what they call them, but they don't have claws. They look just like Maine lobsters, but they don't have any claws. Spiny. Spiny lobsters. Yeah, that's what they They're are. Spiny-tailed lobsters, yeah. Yep, yep, that's what it is. So now I'm holding this net. I'm underwater. I'm holding my breath. This this lobster's like right up against me. And I, now I'm trying to work my way out backwards. And as I'm doing it, a moray eel shot out and latched onto that lobster. And oh I just about goodness. had a heart attack. And you know what happens when you get surprised like that. I took a big, deep breath in and, I, um, you know, got somewhat of a hangover oh. already. And now I just swallowed about three gallons of salt water and I'm gagging and oh. choking. And I come up and I'm laying over the, the side of the raft and puking up seawater. It was just not a pleasant experience. No, that's not, but you're very lucky because an eel will take, can take off your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. He, they're, they're pretty scary looking when they're that close. Oh my goodness. That thing could have latched onto your arm, your hand or taken a finger. Uh, yeah. Or two. Yeah. Well, I let him have the lobster. Um, he can have it. <laughs> we did. We Good did finally. Idea. 
once I figured out how to do this. We did get some pretty incredible food. I mean, you'd get spiny lobsters. You'd get some, you know, weird fish in there that you could eat. We'd get uh, some, had this weird version of kind of a crab thing. I mean, we, we'd just throw everything in the pot and cook it all up. It was really good. Wow. That's great. That sounds delicious. Did you, what, like a, like a boil thing or how, how did you make it? Yeah. A lot of times we would do it like a boil. You just throw everything in the pot. Okay. With, yeah. And um, then just dump it all out on the table and start eating. It was kind of fun and basically free. Love that. <laughs> yeah. What a wild experience. <laughs> yeah, it was. I had, uh, that, that was a fun trip. I, I remember that well. Um, what else we got today? Well, wait, we were in the middle of saying, talking about the stress busters. Have oh, that's four right. Things. We talked about breathing. Yes. And the next thing is breathing, then cold exposure. Yes. And then you didn't say and, the last. Yeah. And again, the, the cold, and I just want to tell people, I know this is the one that freaks everybody out, but... This is the oh, one yeah. that doesn't cost anything and doesn't take very long. We're talking about three to three and a half minutes max. That's when you get the most benefit from cold exposure is that first three to four minutes. Um, Wim Hof explains that that's when you get almost all of the health benefits in three to four minutes. He stays longer. For him, it's really kind of a discipline practice. He, he likes to kind of push the limits of, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And he said that's really the only benefit to doing this longer. So, look, I don't need that benefit. Maybe later on I might do longer times. But if I'm getting the maximum benefit in three to four minutes, then I'm going to do three to four minutes. I'm not going to do 10. I'll just do three to four. So this is free. takes three to four minutes. It's the one most people don't want to do. The whole cold thing just freaks them out. But I can promise you, and I know you're not going to believe me until you experience it, but if you can push through, and it, honestly, it, it takes a couple weeks. On the app, if you, if you get the Wim Hof app, he actually has a cold shower challenge. And you start the challenge, and I think the first day you only do like 20 or 30 seconds. Maybe it's only 15 seconds. And the app tracks it for you. And the next day... You, you do it again and you increase the time just a little bit. And over two or three weeks, I forget what it is, you work up to that three and a half minutes or so. And I can promise you by the time you finish that challenge, you will look forward to the cold part of your shower. I've heard it. I've heard some of the tribe members say it. You just have to push through. And, and it you will get that same... When I get out of that three and a half, four minutes of a cold shower, I get that crazy euphoria. I mean, you, you feel it. You feel alive. Talk about, you know, neurotransmitters. I, I don't know exactly what's happening, but we're creating some good neurotransmitters when we do this because you, you feel pretty incredible. Love that. Yeah. So Point those are the two. Three. They're free. They don't take very long. The breathing you can do anywhere, anytime. Cold showers, I get it. They can be a little bit of a challenge. We've talked about this. I know what it's like when I lived in Florida. You can't take a cold shower. There is no cold water. I know. 
So you got to come up with, you know, a cold bath or some other solution because there are just places where you just can't get cold water. I don't have that problem here. Um, even in the middle of summer, I can get really cold water out of my tap. So cold shower works works well for me. Cold plunge is actually more effective. I'm, I'm seeing now they're actually selling devices for this. You can buy little cold plunge tanks for at home now. I've seen them. I've seen a barrel one that you can step into, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah. I've definitely seen a few. Yep. Yeah, they're, that's becoming more popular because the whole Wim Hof thing is really catching on. Ton of science behind it. It's absolutely been proven. This stuff really works. The other two require some equipment, so it requires spending some money. And the other two are the, um, the heat exposure and the infrared, the, the far infrared. Um, and the, now, this last one wouldn't have to cause mo- cost more money, um, but my favorite way of doing this next one is with the X3 bar. So I, but on the Garmin watch, I actually created three separate workouts for people. One is based on the X3 bar. One is based on adjustable dumbbells. Um, like I have a set of adjustable dumbbells, so I developed a workout for that. But one of the third workout that I put on the Garmin watch doesn't require any equipment at all. It, it's just, it's body weight stuff. So you can do this without spending money. But if you want to build strength and muscle, the X3 bar is just awesome at this. And... For all the people like me with short arms, we are very, very close to a good solution for shorter bands. Um, I'm doing some final testing and research on the particular bands. I have them now. I'm using them. I absolutely love them. I just want to make sure they're the right quality and we can get all the things, but we're really close. um, And once we get this figured out, we'll, we'll have them in the store. Because that is the one thing about the X3 bar that has frustrated me from the beginning. I've tried wrapping up these bands. They're just too long. And, you know, on some exercises, it doesn't matter. But on, like, bench press, tricep stuff, um, there's a couple others. The, uh, the bands are just too long for me. And I, I missed that last couple of inches of resistance. So we're, we're working on a solution for that. But the... The infrared and heat exposure and then a high intensity, short duration. And I really prefer resistance training over cardio training. So that's why we do it with the X3 bar and resistance. And we only really, the routine's 10 minutes. I mean, it's that short. It's incredible. The results you can get out of just 10 minutes about four times a week. So those are the four. Cold exposure, Wim Hof breathing, uh, high-intensity, short-duration workouts, and the infrared sauna. Um, If you can do those four each a couple of times a week even, even if you could only do each one two times a week, you would still get tremendous benefits from this. Four times a week is about optimal, but if you can just do two, And honestly, I'm going to tell people, if you can only do it once a week, then do it once a week. That's still better than not doing it at all. Definitely. I like that. I like that you can do a, like a high intensity workout in 10 minutes to get the results. That's that's huge. Anyone can do that. There's no excuse why someone can't wake up 10 minutes early to get that in. 
Yeah, it really is incredible. And honestly, I can get more results out of that 10 minutes than I used to get out of an hour in the gym because I was doing it all wrong. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's what Other does important it. Thing, though, and um, here's, here's one of the yeah. patterns you can see. So I want people to watch for this pattern and then they, they'll know that they're getting the results we're after. So we've talked about the stress level readout on the Garmin watch, but there's also another reading on there that's really important, and it's tied directly into stress. It's our body battery. And the body battery is basically measuring heart rate variability and some other things. Um, And it's telling you how prepared you are to deal with things, like something that's either physically active or something that's very stressful and mentally active. How well can you hold up to that? And how well are you prepared for that? So we can use the body battery reading in a couple of ways. There are times where maybe you ate too late. um, Maybe I worked out too hard. Maybe I didn't get a good night's sleep. And I'll wake up and worst case scenario, my body battery might be under 10. That's a bad day, but it happens. The scale is zero to 100. When you're at 100, you're ready to take on the world. When you're on zero, you feel like the world is sitting on top of you. Um, You can really tell the difference, and this is an accurate reading. So if I wake up and I'm under 50 when I wake up, there's a good chance by the end of the day I'm going to be under 10, and that's a day I'm probably not going to work out too hard. I'm probably, if I'm going to pick a day not to do the stress protocol, that's going to be the day when my body battery is weak at the beginning of the day, because all you're going to do is, is wear it out. and You're going to have a hard time recovering. So there are times when the body battery will tell us this is the time we need to avoid stress. If our body battery is just low at the beginning of the day, that's a day we should probably try to avoid stress. If we wake up and our body battery's a hundred, you want to hit all four of them that day and hit them hard because you have the energy, you'll be able to recover. And that's the part that's going to build the stress muscle. And what you find, the pattern you find over time is that the number you start with in the morning, the more you do this routine, the higher your number will stay all day. Just like when you train for a marathon, the more you train when, you're, when you have the energy, the easier and easier running becomes and you don't wear out when you run. You can run longer and still have energy. The same thing happens with stress. The more we do these four things, this protocol, the more our stress muscle can handle stress without depleting. In the beginning, you can work really, really hard to get your body battery up to 100, have one bad day, it'll be back at zero by the end of the day. So that's the pattern people can start watching for and use that body battery number to know when you can push and when you shouldn't push, when you should really take a break and relax. That's a good point because there are definitely times when your body needs that break. So that's great. That's with the Garmin watch, right? 
Yeah, it, 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 that was the game changer for me. I, I've been trying to build stress protocols and figure this stuff out for quite some time, a couple of years. And it was finally the, the settings on the Garmin watch, those two things, the body battery and the instant stress level that was really the breakthrough that helped me figure this out. That's great. Now for the, the Aura Ring, we don't have that. Oh, well, we do. We have a readiness score on the Aura Ring. Yes. That was quite similar. Yeah, the, the Aura Ring is measuring the same things. It just displays them differently. I think the Aura Ring, I haven't worn my Aura in a while now, and I have the newest one. Um, I, it's not that I don't like it. I do. I just find that I'm using the Garmin watch so much more that the last time I put my Aura on to charge, I just kind of forgot about it. Never, I haven't put it back on. Um, that was before I went on my trip. So I haven't worn the aura in a long time. I, I just like the, the numbers on the Garmin watch. We're measuring the same stuff, but the numbers on the Garmin watch make more sense to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, and if you're the reason, you know, for you using the Garmin sounds like you get more out of Garmin watch than you do of the ring with the ring. So yeah, it makes sense that you would favor that yeah, so it, um, you know, I, I, I know we, we kind of got off on stress, but I want to make sure we bring this around to our original topic and why we're talking about stress. Um, because when you're dealing with any of those mental health issues, um, stress, depression, anxiety, bipolar kind of stuff, um, this helps tremendously. This honestly does far more than SSRIs do, and there's no downside to this. And you don't, you don't have to keep doing more and more and more and more. You, you can just keep up with this same basic routine, and this will do wonders for um, really balancing those neurotransmitters that we're talking about. Absolutely. I'm always surprised when, I mean, even when you're, when you feel like you're healthy, you're eating right, digesting, you know, on track and all of that, and people aren't exercising or they're not getting any movement, sometimes just that alone will make you feel better. Yes. And for someone like our case study, you know, where she's getting, she's rating her sleep at a two, that, that's not, that, that's ne- she's never going to get where she needs to be until she figures out how to get better sleep because yes. like we talked about blood sugar dysregulation, creating that, that feeling of anxiety that's hampered by a lack of sleep. You've got all of these things hampered by lack of sleep that until you get that right, I'm afraid you're probably never going to feel a hundred percent for so many different reasons. Yeah, but, you're, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. And and these go hand in hand. The more stressed we are, the harder it is to sleep. The more poor our sleep is, the more stressed we are. And then it affects our blood sugar, which <laughs> affects so it's it's this vicious circle that we have to figure out how to break. And in the beginning, it, it just takes pure willpower. And I just don't know any other way to put it. You just have to push through in the beginning. But I can tell you this, you won't have to use willpower forever. 
at some point, this will become easier. So you, you've got to figure out a strategy to, to kind of break this cycle. And then you just have to use pure willpower to get you through the beginning. Um, but I, I can promise you that all of these symptoms improve when you do these things. You know, I want to add one more. I think I talked about this one other time. Um, if I have like just that really hard case where, you know, when you talk to them, they're like, oh, I know I should be doing the breathing. I just can't seem to get into it. I know I should be working out, but, you know, every day I just put it off and say, I'll do it tomorrow. Well, when we're depressed, do you really feel like doing much of anything? Not really. No, that's part of the problem. The yeah, part of the problem with depression is you just have no interest in anything. That That's a classic sign mm-hmm. of depression. You, you're just not interested in doing anything. You can't get motivated. So if I get a case like that where we know these four things work, they work really well, we just can't seem to get somebody started on them. There's one other thing that I think is easier for people, some people, and more powerful in the short term. And it's almost counterintuitive like a lot of things are. Here we are, we're in this mood where, you know, in our mind, our life sucks. We're not interested in anything. We're depressed or we're anxious or both. And and we're very center focused at that point. We're very focused on ourself. All we can think about is ourself. I feel like shit. I don't want to do that. I feel awful. I feel anxious. I don't know what to do. The, the, if you can do one thing at this point, the one thing I would tell you to do is stop thinking about yourself and go help somebody else. Go serve at a food I bank, go, go collect cans and, and, you know, Go down, I don't know, here in Oregon, we have machines that people take cans and bottles and turn them back in for the deposit. Go collect a bunch on a nice walk on a sunny day and give them to somebody that depends on that for money because a lot of people do these days. Go do something to help somebody else. Get out of your own head, stop feeling sorry for yourself and go help somebody else. I love that. Go volunteer your services. Believe it or not, that makes you feel better. <laughs> it really it does. does. It, it really, really does. And sometimes it's easier to go help somebody else than it is to go help yourself even. I agree. That's really good advice, actually, and not one that I had thought of. But that's great advice. And then the next thing that goes right along with this is gratitude. So Drop what you're doing, get out of your own head, go help somebody. And then after you've helped them, be grateful that you have the ability to go do that. Yeah, definitely. That will turn this around faster than anything I know. I'm sorry, go ahead. Another thing that I, you know, that I think is really missing these days, especially, you know, after this pandemic, is just the lack of connection and the feeling of isolation and not having a sense of community. I feel like since, you know, in the past two years, that has been something kind of fueling this anxiety and depression that a lot of people are finding themselves in. And, you know, a sense of community is also one of the things that they highlight in the blue zone. You know, when they talk about 
living, you know, past a hundred and, and what are the similarities between the different places where they're finding these people that are living what, you know, much later, you know, much later. And one of them is a sense of community. Those people are going, forcing themselves to go on walks and talk to their neighbors. And even one of the guys in Italy just goes to the local bar every day and sits there in the same spot, has his same glass of wine, talking to the people, you know, around him and the bartender that he knows. And it's just, it's a sense of community. It's being able to interact, um, you know, get in front of people. But with this whole pandemic, everyone was so isolated and cut off. You know, children weren't able to go to school and play with, you know, other children and all their classmates. So I feel like now that we're not isolating ourselves and we're not in a situation where, where it's needed, go out and be with people, you know? Go talk to people. I like the idea of having social interactions that are very casual, that people are more relaxed and comfortable and, you know, they can be more real and more conversations tend to occur in a, in a setting like that. But I think that a sense of community is is a pretty important aspect to um, just feeling good about yourself and being able to contribute something. I... So, couldn't agree more. That is a big, big part of this. So let's um, let's do a little habit stacking here. So a lot of us have become more and more disconnected. Uh, you know, work schedules, more people working at home during the pandemic, not going out as much. We, we have certainly become more disconnected and our, our modern life was already doing that. So if you're sitting around thinking, well, you know, I don't really work with other people or I only work with a couple and I really don't have much in common with them. And um, I just if you just don't have that connection and you're wondering where to start, let's do a little habit stacking. So the idea of going and helping somebody, find an organization, a food bank. There's a whole bunch of new people you can connect with. And, you know, or, or if you have a friend, even just one, grab them and go do something together. Go volunteer to help other people, but do it together. You, you'll create stronger bonds when you, you combine these two ideas of giving back and helping somebody else and, and being connected while you're doing it. Definitely. I love that idea. All right. So there are, there are plenty of things, plenty of tools that we have to help, but like we said and where we started was really about, you know, working with the good foods, making sure that we're eating nutrient-dense foods, making sure that we're digesting our foods properly so we can absorb the nutrients in those foods, making sure that if we have a situation of leaky gut or dysbiosis, that we're addressing those issues, um, especially because we know that serotonin and the dopamine and the GABA are all created they're in our gut by good, healthy, you know, microorganisms. So we want to make sure that though that our gut is in good shape, um, working on things like better sleep hygiene, all the stress buster protocol things that you mentioned, the breathing, cold and heat exposure, the, and some high intensity workouts, and then volunteering your services, especially with a friend. I love that. Yeah. That's we have one more tool. Place to start. What's this? Um, the El Ruderai yogurt. 
Yes. It increases oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. Oxytocin is the thing that makes us want to connect to other people. It's the uh, neurotransmitter that bonds us to babies. It's why we, you know, we eat all babies, all baby animals. Why, Why is it that virtually every baby animal on the planet is cute? Why is that? Why do we look at these baby animals and we just want to take care of them? So true. I never thought about that. <laughs> it's oxytocin. It's wow. the way the world works. Babies need taken care of. They're, they can't survive on their own. They need that. And we need something powerful to bond us to them so that we want to take care of them. That's what oxytocin does. Wow, it is. And ways to really trigger it are hugs. Hugs are a great way to boost oxytocin. You are, you know, if you don't have a child at home, you can hug someone. Yeah. Known as the, the love hormone, isn't it? Yes, it is. And this L ruteri. But here's, it, here's what we're talking about. All of these neurotransmitters are made in the gut. So that's why L. ruteri works. Yep. We're putting in the specific bacteria that actually creates oxytocin. I love that. Good mention, Kevin. Yeah. So I right now, I am in the, the season where from now till fall, um, my garden will be producing some kind of berry. I have, I have multiple varieties and multiple different kinds of berries planted, um, including cherries. So cherries were first. Um, I have a little cherry tree that put out some cherries the first time this year. Uh, if I could just keep the birds from stealing them, I'd have even more. So I got to figure that out. Um, <laughs> then I had early strawberries starting. I have a raspberry plant that's cranking out raspberries now and a couple more varieties that I'll pick up here in a month or so. Then blueberries will hit. Then I have some fall varieties of berries that hit later in the summer and fall so right now my favorite snack every day is fresh berries off whatever bush is producing that day in the el ruderi yogurt berries and yogurt just incredible i love that i would even top it with a little bit of that lark ellen grain-free granola that that we carry in oh yeah Oh, yeah. Throw a little bit of the vanilla and cinnamon on top of those berries and yogurt, and it is crazy good. It's like a really good dessert, yet there's like virtually no sugar in there. I mean, there's some natural carbs, but it, it's all really good stuff. And yeah, that, that's an incredible combination. Yeah, it really is. I've been, I've been having some of that myself. I, they're not fresh berries from my yard, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'll work my way up to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I take it the weather is, is, is better now. Florida is good for growing strawberries. Oh, yeah. Maybe yeah, in fact, um, one of the little towns just outside of Orlando, I think it's just southwest, but I can't remember the name of it. Oh, what's the name of that town there? They're famous for their strawberry festival every summer. 
Oh, they have a festival? Yeah. I definitely what, don't know about this. What time? I got to go look that up. Um, I've been to it because when I lived in Orlando, we would go down there. I just, I'm not, uh, I'm not remembering the name of the town right now. I'm looking it up. Florida Strawberry Festival. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool event. Um, Plant City. That's what it is. Plant Plant City, Florida. Yeah, they have been doing their annual strawberry festival since 1930. Wow. Okay, I'm going to check this out. Yeah. I'm writing Um, down as we speak. Now, all the other berries, uh, blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, marionberries, gooseberries, all of those grow incredibly well in the Pacific Northwest. This is like where all the best berries come from. Um, some of them are kind of native to this area, Marionberry and a couple of the others. But um, and, and blackberries here, oh, they're like an invasive species. I've never seen blackberry <laughs> plants like here. They will just take over and they just spread like crazy. And we... Uh, I could, when blackberry season starts hitting here in a couple weeks, I can walk out of my house and pick blackberries for 10 hours straight and never probably get more than a half mile from my house. Wow, that's incredible. I'm envious. We don't have blackberries. Here, they're just absolutely (laughs) wild. Like a lot of people are just, they don't like them. They can't get rid of the plants. I mean, once they start growing, they are really hard to get rid of. I I love the fact that it's wild. It's completely organic. It's, um, and I love blackberries. So I even, I even picked so many one year we canned a bunch. We, we made a blackberry syrup, cooked them all down to a, a syrup and, and canned it. And we used that for, you know, Put a I little, do that every year. Yeah, put a little of that in yogurt and just stir it in. It's it's pretty darn good. Uh, so, what? What? Uh, I think we should probably wrap this up. Are we doing live Q and A today? Yeah, we can do a live Q and A if it doesn't. If it's fine to do it on the boat, I'm down to do it. Uh, you're fine. I think that'll be kind of fun. Uh, so you'll be live on the video I, this week. I'll be in the chat room answering questions. You know, last week we did the um, garden tour. It was a little choppy. The video wasn't that great. It was really windy. Um, I have some ideas on how I can fix that, make it a much better quality and better sound and all of that. But my, what I was really wondering was, does anybody even want this? You know, I, I, I know I'm a little obsessed with my garden. Um but I don't want to talk about it a lot if that's not what people want to hear. So I asked last week, you know, give me some feedback. I was really shocked. I got a lot of feedback and people really loved it and they want more of it. I'm not surprised. Everyone always calls in and asks questions about your garden, what's going on there. I'm not surprised when we sit. Yeah. So I think for the rest of the season, we'll just do a once a month thing where we'll, we'll flip it around where I'll do the video and out in the garden and, 
you know, kind of give you an update each month, or maybe I'll pick one specific plant or technique and, you know, go over that, like what's the best way to grow tomatoes and go through all the tips and tricks on tomatoes, or I'll think of something, but I think at, you know, once a month, I think we'll, we'll flip the uh, live Q and A around and um, you'll be in the chat and I'll be out doing something in the garden on video. I think that sounds very cool. Let's do that. All right, let's. So um, I think we're going to want to take a little bit of a break today. What time do you want to start on live Q&A? Let's do it in about 10 minutes. Let's do it at 2 p.m. Eastern. I think that's 11 p.m. your time. Perfect. Works for me. All right. All right. All right. We will see you. That's on healthytribe.com. So in 10 minutes, Log into healthytribe.com and all you have to do is sit there. We'll, Lauren will show up in your feed on video um, and I'll be in the chat room answering any questions you've got. And we can continue the food theme day if you want or you can ask us anything at all. All right, we're going to wrap this up and we will see you at healthytribe.com in 10 minutes. Don't be late. Be safe. Be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.